1: With the increasing number of climate change impacts being seen across the globe, it is becoming apparent that not all communities are affected equally. Today's guests have dedicated their career to being champions for at-risk populations facing environmental challenges, and Dr. Bob Bullard is even lauded as the father of environmental justice. Dr. Bullard is an award-winning author and also serves as Distinguished Professor of Urban Planning and Environmental Policy at Texas Southern University. I'm also joined by the Reverend Dr. Gerald Durley, who's the uh, pastor emeritus at Providence Missionary Baptist Church, and he also serves on the board of the Georgia Interfaith Power and Light. We'll discuss how these workers have brought to attention to the humanitarian crisis that we face and how environmental health and resilience issues will face the world going forward in terms of extreme weather and climate change. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me on the Weather Geeks podcast. Glad to be here. Yeah, I, you know, yeah, I want to start with you, Dr. Bullard, because I know you've traveled across the country here uh, to talk about a topic that many of us consider you the father of environmental justice. So weather geeks is a podcast that has an array of, of listeners from all backgrounds, all perspectives.
2: So tell us a little bit about who you are
1: and what environmental justice is.
2: Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. I am uh, an environmental sociologist uh, at uh, Texas Southern U- University in Houston. And for the last uh, four decades, I've worked on issues around environment, justice, race, health, and uh, how those, uh, those uh, issues connect. And I've tried to um, bring clarity to uh, that intersectionality and try to uh, educate, train, and, and mobilize uh, different populations around uh, those issues, and especially uh, – Young people and students. Yeah, so. we tend tend to deal with weather
1: and climate issues on the show uh but in terms of the legacy of what most of your work has sort of evolved from it started really with sort of environmental issues related to where um you know sanitary uh, garbage um facilities uh, incinerators uh pl- industrial plants are located relative to certain populations would you characterize that as essentially the framing of environmental justice or is it even more than that
2: well, you know, environmental justice uh, uh, has its roots in uh, issues around uh, civil rights and the the disparities that exist in terms of uh, who gets what, when, where, and why. And it, it uh, took off, uh, in my case, with uh, the location of uh, landfills, incinerators, and garbage dumps and land use planning, or lack thereof, that created these uh, hotspots. And so if you move from uh who gets uh, the re- the residential disamenities amenities versus who gets the amenities who gets the flood mitigation and flood protection and who's left uh, uh, to drown or sink or swim uh, it's easily to translate and move uh, from dealing with toxics and 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 waste uh, to dealing with issues around um, uh, climate issues around resilience issues around, which uh, populations uh, have been forced to live uh, on the front line and fence line and in the floodplains. Now, you mentioned
1: civil rights issues. This is why I would come to you, Dr. Durley, because you have you have a very interesting op ed that you wrote a few years ago talking about climate change as a not just an issue facing humanity in the world, but as a civil rights issues. Tell us a little bit about your background and then why you chose to write that op ed.
0: First, of, <clears throat> first of all, such an honor to be here with the with the dean, with the father of environmental justice. I feel so humbled, uh, we, and, as well as you, Doctor. I started in the civil rights movement in 1959 at Tennessee State uh, University, the marches and all of that, and we were fighting for justice. We were fighting for to to be able to sit in the front of the bus to be able to drink for certain water fountains, to be able to buy where we wanted to. Those were civil and human rights based upon the Constitution. And so all of my life I've dedicated it Uh, my life to that. And then when the environmental movement came along, I did not see the connection between environmental movement and the civil rights movement. So I got involved and a lady began to just bug me about this (laughs) environmental stuff. I didn't want to be bothered with it. But she kept telling me, I want you to meet my husband. He's concerned about it. And I said, that's not my concern. We in the African American community, it was not a priority to us. We could not connect the dots. But this was a very persistent lady named Jane Fonda, and she immediately connected. She said, will you meet my husband? And I met him, and I began to understand that everybody has the right to clean water, toxic-free air. Let me say, by the way,
1: that husband, I believe, was Ted Turner. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, (laughs) Ted Turner,
0: Glenn, uh, the Seidel's, and all of that group. So they began to talk to me, and in the process, I met Sally Bingham and other people. But every place I went, I began to see that. Even though we, as black peoples polluted the least, we were the ones suffering the most from asthmatic conditions and from uh, 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 uh other kind of food deserts, and these kinds of things. so I got involved so now I spend a lot of time connecting the dots to show that education, employment, and health are all directly related to uh to climate change, and we are negatively disproportionately impacted so mine is basically trying to educate. Uh, following the lead of of, uh, Dr. Bullard and others who've been in before me, trying to connect the dots so that it becomes a reality and it becomes a priority in our churches, in our fraternities, in our sororities, in our boulets, and all of these things that we have conspicuously been left out of. So that's how I tie it back to civil and human rights. This is a right.
1: Right. And, you know, we're talking about environmental justice here. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from University of Georgia talking with uh, Professor and Dean Robert Bullard and uh, the Reverend Dr. Gerald Durley here on the Weather Geeks podcast. And I know, you know, I'm I'm sensing it even as you're listening to this right now because I know the Weather Geeks podcast listener base. You know, I mean, wait a minute, Dr. Shepard. What in the world are you all talking about? This is not something that impacts me. I don't know what you're saying. This is a topic, but I want you to stay with this conversation because um, although we're talking about an issue that has uh, primarily focused on um, aspects of people of color, marginalized populations and all these others, Dr. Bullitt talked about soft terms that often get used. There are many facets to sort of challenges related to environmental justice and what we're going to call weather and climate justice today as well. I want to pivot. For example, Dr. Bullard was earlier talking about Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Katrina, even Imelda, uh, a storm that impacted Houston. And and, and, uh, he's at Texas Southern University, which is in Houston. So very closely tied to those local issues as well as broader issues. Talk about because this is a weather geeks. Talk about how those weather events, um, Dr. Bullard, kind of translate into justice issues.
2: Well, if you look at the... I wrote a book in 1987 called Invisible Houston, The Black Experience in Boom and Bust. And in that book I I mapped out and laid out uh, Houston and how uh, neighborhoods were segregated by racial lines and which communities were, were uh, relegated to certain areas. And if you fast forward um, uh, and look at the areas which historically flood, low-lying areas, areas that are um, disproportionately impacted by the refineries and petrochemical plants, and and those areas that somehow. And Houston doesn't have zoning now, and so that means that somebody decided that this is the best place for the people. And Houston, um, over the last you know couple of years, for example, five years, uh, has had three five uh, hundred uh, year floods. You know, you had the Tax Day flood, Memorial Day flood, and you had Harvey, and then you had Imelda. I mean, and, you, and again, if you map out which communities historically have had flooding, we're not just talking about these these uh, megastorms. We're talking about the east side. Those communities of color that were, quote, unofficially zoned for uh, certain types of things that other people don't want. We call them locally unwanted land uses or Lulu's. And so when we map out the impact of climate change and the issues of these severe weather events in which communities are most likely to, to get flooded and which communities are most likely not to get bought out, which communities are most likely um, uh, not to somehow get flood protection. It's the same communities, those communities of color that, that, uh, that segregation and redlining Uh, Have have made to be more vulnerable,
1: right? And you you made some linkages between sort of the historical evolution of what you would call the southern tier of the United States in terms of some of the historical legacies of inequity, uh, challenges dating back to slavery and up to through Jim Crow and whatnot. Um, Dr. Durley, you have talked about, and I've heard you eloquently state in the past that um, as we talk about some of these justice issues, and I want to pivot to weather climate justice issues, that people tend to think about polar bears and climate change. But you often say this is you know not just about polar bears. Um, you know, Why why do you really spend so much of your time now
0: thinking about these issues from the standpoint of human beings? When When we look at What's primary in the African-American community? We're concerned about education. We're concerned about health. We're concerned about employment. We're concerned about justice and police brutality. These are priorities, not climate change and not uh, global warming. And butterflies. Butterflies. <laughs> or right. What are polar bears doing, the melting glaciers? It's not that we don't think it's important, but we're a survival people, and we think about what directly impacts us. Now, let me make it really clear. When I went to Ferguson, Illinois, right after the shooting, If you take any group of people, put them in a small, constrained area, with poor education, limited access to education, limited access to health care, low employment, and poor food, and then put 100-degree temperature on them for 10 days, it does not take a policeman. A priest can start a riot. Absolutely. Because the etiological factors are there that come together. So when we can see that climate change and, the, and the, the rising of the heat and the floods and these kinds of things directly in the urban areas are impacting us, then we beg- begin to understand why it's important for us to join the legislative process to talk talk about GMOs, to talk about uh, holding back on on certain kinds of uh, fossil burning fuels. But right now that has not been connected, so we don't do it. But now it is becoming more and more important that we get involved uh, with that because that is our constitutional right. right. And right now we're in a moral crisis. I don't mind the business people know what they want. They want money. Scientists want knowledge. Politicians want power. But none of it will work unless it's faced Placed upon a moral foundation, and that's what Dr. King talked about. So we've got to make moral decisions on those three major elements that keep us in bondage. Yeah, absolutely. Now, again,
1: there may be someone listening to this say, "Well, you know, I don't resonate with what you're saying. I, I, I don't. Uh, I, I don't. I'm not a person of color. I don't live in one of these vulnerable communities." Dr. Biller, what would you tell someone that is listening to this right now? And I know that's happening because, you know, on WeatherGeeks, we try to expand and broaden the discussion here. We talk about everything. First of all, why should someone that perhaps is not from one of these communities care? And then as you talked about earlier, you gave me some examples up in Appalachia and other places where some of these environmental justice issues just aren't just tied to race or people of color or marginalized groups. Can you expand on that thought?
2: Yeah, I think the, that may be a misconception that environmental justice is, is only about race. And when we talk about environmental justice, we're talking about um, populations that are disproportionately and negatively impacted, whether it's children, um, uh, whether it's women, uh, or whether it's elderly, uh, whether it's people who are geographically, spatially located in areas that, that create that vulnerability. And the example of Houston, for example, Harvey basically... Uh, impacted a large part of Houston, and it impacted an area uh, that historically is not flooded, and we're talking affluent white communities. And what we say in the environmental justice movement is that when we fail to protect the most vulnerable, we fail to protect everybody. We saw that in Katrina. When you don't provide levee protection for everybody in an equal way, uh, when you when that weak weak levee, or that weak. Uh, weak link breaks. It places everybody at risk. And so, for those affluent folks who say, "I don't live next to, you know, a refinery or whatever," when we uh, clean up the air and we make it breathable for everybody. Because there's no black air, Hispanic air, white air. There's air. And most of us don't decide next Tuesday we're not going to breathe. And so we're talking about justice, fairness and equity.
1: And you made a point and I want to bring this up to Reverend Durley because he's written about this as well. Sort of the children and the younger generation, because you made a point earlier, Dr. Bullard, that. Irrespective of what colored children are, I, mean, I don't think there's anyone lining up to say they want to see children face poor air or toxic chemicals being placed in their communities, in their backyards, or frankly facing the threat of more intense hurricanes. I mean, so I, both of you I've heard, it's a common thread in both of your writings and your talking, have talked about young generation. Um, Does do the young generation play a role in your mind, Dr. Durham? They must
0: play a role. And I think Dr. Bullard in the the uh, the scientists, the young scientists that, that come together, I think it's the 6th or the 7th year that all the HBCUs come together. But what, you, know, you, you know as you were talking, you, you made me think about something. I remember when we were marching in 1960 and 1961 there were people, maybe like some of those on this geek phone call mm-hmm. that said, that doesn't impact us, I'm not black, I can ride wherever I want, I can buy a house everywhere I want. But we stayed, we stayed pure to the cost. And guess who benefited? The women's movement, the gay and lesbian movement, everybody jumped on the back of the civil rights. Even Greta Thunberg is using our techniques that we use about marching and civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. So they were saying that it wasn't, why are they doing this? It is incumbent for all of us to join together because climate change and global warming, this is an equal opportunity destroyer. destroy it. It's not about tall, short, black, gay, lesbian. So consequently, I heard that conversation 60 years ago. Well, why are they doing this and why are they marching? Yet when when justice rolled down, when justice came, everybody jumped on and using that. So again, as Mar- Dr. King said. Unfortunately, the poor and the African-American community and other communities, we are the consciousness of America. But we have been excluded from this. It's been another kind of movement. When I go to meetings, I'm sometimes the only black person in there. It's increasing now. So consequently, we must once again become the consciousness. When a man like Dr. Bull has been out there since 1987 when he wrote the book and then coming back, it's coming full circle. And the young people now are becoming involved with this on the Historically Colleges and universities, but they're tying it in in a very pragmatic kind of way, where it's it, it, it goes way beyond color because uh, we're uh, we're an extricably uh, cloth bound together with one destiny. So that's why we all come together in this. And the young people now are certainly Im- important at the for the colleges. At one time we majored in psychology and biology and law, but now we've got to look at the uh, environmental and engineering kinds of programs because that will begin to generate what this next uh, 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 decade will look like. Ah.
1: We're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Bullard from Texas Southern University, uh, and I'm also speaking with uh, the Reverend Dr. Gerald Durley from here in Atlanta, who has worn many hats as well. Frankly, two legends in the field, and I'm just in awe of being sitting at the table, having an opportunity to talk to them. So uh, it's my honor and pleasure. And I I hope that you recognize this as well. Um, What I would advise you to do as Weather Geeks listeners, because I I, I know that this is a a bit of a show that's deviating a little bit uh, off in a different direction than perhaps what you're familiar with. But this is an opportunity for you to, one, Go just Google both of these guests, Google environmental justice and sort of broaden our horizons. You know, we 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 like to talk about not getting sort of stuck in our stove pipes and stuck in our sort of echo chambers, if you will. This show really is an opportunity to broaden and educate on a topic. Dr. Bullard, I mean, I want to come back to you. Uh, one thing I was on a panel recently uh, here in Atlanta. And one of the young young ladies that was on the panel with me actually testified before before Congress with Greta Thunberg. And she mentioned that though the young people are out there leading on these issues, they don't feel that they should be. They should. They feel that adults should be stepping up. Why are they that? Why do they have to utilize their youth to be voices for obvious change on issues of environment and climate? What, what would, how do you react to that?
2: Well, you have to understand that that's a natural feeling. Uh, some of us felt that way when we were still in high school and, when, and we were in, in college and, and, and on the front line. And with uh, uh, civil rights leaders, uh, we were not old enough to vote, uh, but we were fighting for the right to vote. And to understand, and I will tell that uh, young person uh, to, to stay with it, stay the course. Every social movement that has been successful in this country has always had a strong youth and student component. And students have, and young people have carved out that space and has pushed uh, their elders to, to move further and further in terms of their actions. And so it's important that we have young people uh, out there um, uh, being assertive and, and fearless uh, and to not allow anybody to tell them that they cannot do uh, what they uh, all understand is about fight for justice. Yeah. Uh, I, I like yeah. that. I love that. Yeah, that's a old, great point.
0: F- Old folks don't fight wars. <laughs> You've never seen 50-year-olds 50, 50 on the front line. Right. It's the young people in those foxholes who are fighting. So Dr. Bullard is exactly right. The older people... What we've got to do is bridge the generational gap where they can understand the wisdom of those who've been out there for some time and their energy that they can use to go and use the young people's energy with our wisdom. And when you combine that, that's a winning combination. Dr. King says, none of us are free until we're all free. So consequently, if we can take those young people with their ideas, with their freshness, but most of all with their energy. Their energy will fuel this. They're the catalytic force that will keep us going. When we're tired, when we say we're tired, we can't make it, they will lift us up and keep stay, keep the fighting, and then they will pass on to the next generation. Both of you have heard the saying, when are you going to pass on the torch? Nobody passed the torch to Harriet Tubman. She said, give me the torch. And these young people are taking it, and we've got to relinquish it and allow them to just run with it, and they will— they will, they will energize us. We will give them our bits and pieces and we will def- we're on the winning team. Margie. Yeah. And I
1: think and I think what she was really getting at is because they're all in for the fight. That was the sense I got. I I think they were a bit frustrated with the the denialism and the inaction that they see from our policymakers on some of these issues. And Dr. Boller, you actually mentioned this. I want to get both of your thoughts on this. You actually mentioned that, you know, in the early days of the environmental justice movement, people didn't believe some of the things you were showing you were showing that certain communities had higher rates of certain diseases and health outcomes et cetera. Uh, we here today we know as a scientist myself who publishes in the literature we see what's happening with the climate with the ozone hole we saw what was going on but they were denied how do we and I want both your thoughts on this how do we get over this idea when they're sort of that you know, when the data is crystal clear, I mean, crystal with Windex on it, actually, is crystal clear about things. But you, you still have these sort of contrarian takes. How, how do you overcome that?
2: Well, what we have to do is keep producing the findings, the studies. We keep doing the research uh, and uh, have better communicators to, to communicate. Uh, we have to have great, uh, better uh, translations of the research, the findings. And we have to have more messengers that, uh, that are more diverse. Uh, and understand that this is nothing new, having the facts having the document documentation uh having irrefutable evidence has never been enough uh and you have to have um more uh to convince uh and to get people to somehow come on board uh and Again, we just have to be relentless. you know I tell people fighting for justice, no matter what the issue uh the issue is, whether it's environment, health, housing transportation, or climate. Um, the fact that that this is, uh, the fight for justice is no sprint. It's a race, but it's not uh, a sprint, it's a marathon. And as a matter of fact, it's a race that doesn't exist. It's a marathon relay. We have to run our 26 miles and pass the baton to the next generation to run t- their 26. And again, that's how we create this intergenerational movement and keep it going. That's mm-hmm. how we make change.
0: Reverend Durley, what are your thoughts? Well, <clears throat> You know, it's interesting. Uh you translate all bodies of learning. Uh, uh, I've been quite a few things, but the, for 27 years there, the pastor of Providence Baptist Church. And I got up every Sunday and I told people the tragedy of what's going to happen to them if they don't give their lives. But all faiths have a certain certain uh, encouragement, whether it's Muslim, Jewish, uh, Buddhism, whatever it is. And every we said, how do we get them to commit? How do we get them to change? I, I've learned one thing, that two, two things tend to make people psychologically change their position. We can get up and preach all day about going to hell and all this. That don't mean a thing about it. is there a God? Is there not a God? Two things I've found over the years, one, old age, (laughs) and two, tragedy. When folks get old then they start realizing what you've been saying all along, or something cataclysmic occurs in their life. So right now, the people must uh, understand the translation that this is a cataclysmic moment. Then they make a commitment. I've preached and preached, and they say, oh, yeah, yeah, and then cuss each other out in the parking lot. But because they did not, it's not a reality to them. What we've got to do now in this movement is connect the dots so it becomes a reality, and then they make a commitment. So since we're not working with the old age, let's get the young people to understand that this is a tragic moment. And I think that that's what they're doing. They're seeing the tragic. That's what gets people to change when they see it's tragic, or they become come old. Even Jim Wallace got so old he had to change. Well, I think we even see that even with weather events. I mean, I
1: think uh, there are studies that show that after a Katrina or after the California wildfires, the Australian wildfires that we are seeing happening right now as we are taping this, uh, people tend to change their viewpoint on climate change. Even though it's an episodic weather event at the time that may in fact be linked to climate change, we do see these connective points. Uh, I want to sort of pivot now because we do see Things like Imelda, you made the point that it was flooding out Houston even before it had a name. Um, We see Katrina's. Those are obvious threats. People kind of like, oh, my gosh, I got to get flood insurance now or I need to move to higher ground. But there are these more subtle things that happen. Uh, If you're living year after year and generationally after generationally in a community that has a, 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 a plant upwind, that has plumes of toxins coming downwind, or even heat, sort of living in an urban heat island that's also in a background climate that's warming, sort of how and I'm going to talk about communities are vulnerable. How do we get the communities to understand the buy-in and the threat and vulnerability? Because oftentimes I think, you know, as Reverend Durley said, people concerned about their light bill or water bill, they don't necessarily connect the dots to sort of some of these long-term, what I call creeping issues. What are your thoughts
2: there? Well, if you uh, talk about people who work outside and if you're in the Gulf Coast or I live in Texas and people who work outside and they understand. They know that the fact that it's getting hotter, and uh, this is not uh, theory. It's not something that uh, a sexy topic. This is real. And when you um, are out there in 95, 105 degree uh, heat, and it's you know 90% humidity, and your paycheck is based on. You going out there on the roofing or on landscaping and you or whether it's dealing in agricultural or whatever and and it's it's getting worse and so those folks you don't have to convince uh it's the it's the people who may be in those office building that's well air conditioned that it's always seventy two or seventy uh, and Probably it's, too cold inside, which is exacerbating <laughs> yeah. climate change
1: because of all the AC and the
2: fossil. Yeah, so so it's so so again, there's this disconnect And when you talk about those communities that are impacted by you know those. Um, uh, every year we have these outbreaks uh, in terms of uh, Zika viruses, then you start looking at those communities that are going to be hit hard by the flooding, and you start naming those things. Um, those communities that have, that have that has had a historic. Um, legacy of flooding. There's no convincing. They know that things are getting bad for them, and they they are they're saying, "What are we going to do now?" They're not waiting for you know five years from now for people to act.
1: Right, and and, and that's a that's a great point. The, the the here and now. I mean, I know the National Climate Assessment. By the way, during the second Bush administration, uh, legislation was passed that uh, that. Causes the United States to assess the climate every four years or so. It's called the National Climate Assessment. So again, I, I emphasize that because uh, you pointed out that one of the first sort of major pieces of action related to environmental justice came under the first Bush, I believe you mentioned, or at least something that you pointed out. My point here is this: is not these issues aren't sort of left right, Republican Democrat. They're they're human issues, and so the National Climate Assessment assesses the climate every four years, and it found in the its most recent 2018 report that the number of work hours outside will contract because it's just going to be too hot. Now, I mean, all of you eat peanut butter or eat lettuce or drink wine or whatever. All of those things are harvested or, or by someone that's working outside. Our roads are repaired by someone working outside. So we talked about connectivity to our lives, whether these issues are directly related to you or not. Oh, they're connected. So it's important to understand that, Dr. Durrell, I, I saw you scribbling feverishly over there. Uh, I want to know
0: what you're writing. No, uh, I think uh, I was following up on what uh, Dr. Bullard was saying is that when I'm talking to people now and trying to connect the dots, when I talk about we've got to be concerned with the oceans flooding and people moving more and more inward, they're going to move in more and more to the cities, So we're facing something here in Atlanta and most major cities called gentrification and gentrification so when we're talking to people about trying to stay in your homes because it's costing more where they're going to move the people on the outside suburban area they're moving back into the cities and they're going to make it more environmentally sensitive and comfortable so we've got to stay the course right now and not sell your piece of property but how do you insulate it so we've got to talk about insulating it it's hard to talk about solar panels and wind in a person but we can talk in a Churches and all and all this. But we can talk about insulation so that we're not cooling the outside and heating the outside depending on the on the on the area. So we've got to make it very real in their lives. So the environmental, you've got to stay here because these other folks from the outside are coming in and that moves toward displacement. Generally, if we follow the general trend in America, the displacement automatically in most cases uh negatively disproportionately impacts minorities communities uh and 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 poor communities so consequently we've got to now in the urban areas as the cities are moving toward alternative energies and solar and all this we've got to be in there otherwise guess what's going to happen the the buildings will be nice downtown everything and guess what we'll be we'll be out out outside outside of the city dying from the same kinds of things that that we've faced before, poor food and all these things. Absolutely. And I mean I think those are real issues that, that, that
1: bread and butter gut issues that we have to face. Every well day. We're getting ready to kinda of draw this to a close, but you, you 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 said something that did resonate with me because I think even though this environmental justice issue has has its roots in things here in the United States. Some of these things we see in global and international, you mentioned for example Atlanta becoming a receptor city for example during Katrina. Many people fled to Atlanta and there's there's studies by a former colleague of mine that show that there are certain cities that are going to absorb the sort of climate migration or displacement from the coast Uh, and we see that also internationally as well with islands and nations that are going to suffer from sea level rise or for lack of of agricultural productivity, so as we draw to a close here, uh, I, I want to get both of your thoughts. Uh, you know, this uh, here on one where people can find you if you're in social media. And I, I know I know that you are, Dr. Bullard, or if you're not. By the way, I want to take this opportunity to congratulate Dr. Bullard because he just received one of the most prestigious awards within our field or within the broader climate and environmental field, the Steven Schneider Award for communicate, Climate Communication. Received that in December 2019 at the American Geophysical Union. So congratulations, oh. first of all. Oh, that, that's you. a huge honor. I mean, <laughs> again, Google that. I, a rumor on the street tells me Dr. Durley may be up for something uh, coming
0: up as well, uh, some type of award dream here. Dream Forward. Dream it's Forward King, Award. The King, on just January the 14th, the King Center I is going to put this as one of the top issues. Not, not just uh, are you continuing to dream, but it's called the Dream Forward Award, and it will kick off all of the events for the uh, King, the e- around eco-justice and uh, kinds of things that Dr. Bullard talked about. But now Bernice King and the others are realizing that if, if Martin were here, he would be talking about this. So let's dream forward yeah. rather than remembering the dream, celebrating the dream, and acting on the dream. Let's dream forward around climate change and environment. And that'll be your last word. Dr. Bullard, any final thoughts
1: for our Weather Geeks and listeners? And again, a, a listener base that perhaps might not be the target base for some of the things that you, know, that you all do. What would you leave the weather Geeks listeners with in terms of what you've done historically in your career?
2: Well I'd say that uh, environmental justice and climate justice has always been about uh, health and and the fact that climate change uh, global warming will um, will uh, increase the number of bad air days and and in, in terms of health effects in terms of rising asthma rates and respiratory illnesses and heart uh, 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 cardiovascular Most of us don't decide that we're not going to breathe. And so breathing is... Is, uh, is something that we are for. Yeah. And we are definitely for justice. Yeah,
1: yeah I, I don't know why this just came to mind. but I mean, There's a, a rap song by Dr. Dre, and I remember one of his lyrics is, I like breathing. <laughs> so <laughs> yes, I, <know> so <laughs> um, I think that's a, a, a salient point to end on. But before we do end, we have to do something we do every week here on Weather Geeks. It's our Geek of the Week. This week's Geek of the Week is Kenyatta Esters, who is the Emergency Preparedness Manager with the Louisiana Department of Health. Kenyatta's fascination with weather began when she was in elementary school and she has carried that passion into her current position as a healthcare emergency manager while her favorite type of weather is that rare southern snow s-n-e-a-u-x she's from louisiana remember her most memorable weather event came in 1997 when severe thunderstorm winds topping 100 miles per hour blew through monroe louisiana this reiter- reiterated how important it is to prepare for all types of inclement weather. Kiata loves the weather and has also been called to serve as a skyworn storm spotter, a weather-ready nation ambassador, point of contact at her agency, and even to be a member of the newly formed coastal Louisiana chapter of the AMS. Go Kenyatta. Congratulations, Kenyatta, on your work and keep it up. And if you know someone deserving of being a geek of the week, be sure to follow Weather Geeks at all of our social media outlets on Twitter and Facebook. Dr. Bullard, I know you have some, a Twitter Twitter account. What's your Twitter? Do you know
2: it offhand? At at Dr. Bob Bullard.
1: At Dr. Bob Bullard. Are you on social media, Doctor? Uh, I I suspected not, but we know you can Google uh, Reverend Durley and find out all about him because Google him and you'll find out all you need to know. Again, thank you all for joining us on this episode of Weather Geeks. We're here every week. New episode every Wednesday. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. See you next time.